Team professional. Y'all let it rock. Ready, Nick? Let's go. All right, everybody, talk about it outdoors live in the Wilson studio. I am your host, Alex DeBoer. Joined as joined with me as always, Nick Wilson, Cody Watson back in studio with us, and we can't wait to kick this one up and get it underway. We got a special guest with us here tonight. Y'all may not know who he is, but I promise by the end of this one, y'all gonna know exactly who he is. Pull up a chair and sit a while. You know, as it goes, Nick, we've had a lot of fun. We've had a lot of guests from, uh, you know, across this great country that we've had. But uh, I tell you one thing tonight, I know you're as fired up as anybody to get this one underway <laughs> with an illustrious guest. I'm fired up a little bit. I'm getting nervous as it goes. Well, I mean, we've been talking about this for a while. I know. As soon as you told me that you'd made contact with this guy, I just I couldn't I couldn't believe it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be one of those things that I can't wait to talk with him. What is that? Nicholas, tonight we are joined by an icon in the Southern Outdoorsman Circle. Since the late 1980s, when he joined forces with an equally iconic brand founded right over the hill in Mississippi, He's given us a taste of what it's like to be a southern camo-clad warrior trying to make it in the outdoor industry. Calling loud and proud on the Longbeards, being a wonderful family man, father, grandpa, and an amazing man of faith, he has indeed made his mark in a big way. This man continues his story career, telling all those stories on his ever-popular podcast series, A Fistful of Dirt, entertaining listeners all over the country with his exploits with gentlemen such as Toxie, Cotton Top, Bubba, and his ever-evolving grandson, Mr. Cranky. It goes without saying what an honor and a privilege it is for you, I, and Cody to welcome to Talk About It Outdoors podcast, Mr. Ronnie Cuz Strickland. Holy cow, I'm, I'm humbled. You you guys need to raise your bar a little bit. And who found that rap song? I thought I had killed that thing. Once and for all, you guys have done your homework. Oh, my goodness. Well, cuz, I can tell you one thing. The man sitting over here to my right is as big a turkey hunter as anybody that I know of. He's a fan of the game more than anybody that I know of. And he's probably a bigger fan of yours than anybody I know of. For you to come on and sit with us tonight and chat a while, I promise you, he's excited as could be. <laughs> Well, that's that's uh, that's very humbling. I I get a lot of nice notes every day, and you know sometimes you forget you got a big reach, and you know if you have a big reach, that comes with a big responsibility. So I try to never say no to the you know the younger people up and coming, because at some point everybody got a, a break, and anything I can do to help that next generation keep that passion alive i'm telling you i'm all in so thank y'all for the invite well the invitation alone uh, accepted was a great honor to us but for you to get continue to grow in the outdoor industry and show these young folks out there them old them old dogs can still kick it up with the best of them and if <laughs> anyone that's listening hasn't already you need to make sure you're tuning in to a fistful of dirt they drop a new one every tuesday and uh, your daughter does an amazing job on the social media aspect of it, making sure everyone's up to date on what Mr. Cuz is doing. 
Yeah, she's something else. I, you know, I'm surrounded by younger people, and you know, it's uh, some guys my age. I, I just turned 67, and and I feel, I still feel like I'm 35. You know, but uh, some older guys like me, they they hadn't embraced social media. They they'll complain about it and all that, but it kind of hit me in the face years ago. My oldest, my granddaughter, who's my oldest grandchild, she was she just started at Mississippi State. Go dog. But when she was about 12, uh, we'd been catfishing and she, uh, we were sitting in the house and she was, you know, scrolling on that phone. And I kind of got on her a little bit about spending that much time on the phone. And she looked at me and she said, Pop, if you're not on Instagram, you're not relevant. And it, it kind of stung. I mean, she wasn't, she wasn't telling me. She was just giving me a statement. And I, that night I thought about it. I said, you know what? I'm going to be relevant to my grandkids and these young people because that's how they get their information. So I've dug in. My wife's helped and my daughters have helped. And, and I said, you know, I'm going to learn how to navigate social media and uh, try to stay in touch with these people because I've got uh, it clearly the younger generation enjoys uh, older stories, how-to stuff. And it's not that I live in the past. I don't. That's why I, I battle the social media thing all the time, but you know, at some point you got to start giving back and that's how they get their messages. So, you know, three years ago, I didn't know what a podcast was and Lauren kept pushing me and the people from Offield properties came and said, we need to have a podcast. So we want you to do it. And I said, well, let's try it. I did. And I learned pretty quick what they're about there. It's, it's a lot of work, but that's how people get their information now. So you got to, you got to embrace it or you're just going to get left out. Cuz, do you think there's something, as podcasts like yourself and us, do you think there's something that we could bring to the people that is left out of these hunting podcasts that we're not doing a good enough job in it, as far as teaching or anything along those lines? Do you think there's something that you, you battle with to try to get better at that, that would might help us or some, someone else that might do a podcast that might listen to this? You know, here here's what I learned, and I, I've learned always – to just be yourself. And that got me a long way. I'm, you know, I don't have a college education. I've learned how to deal with people. And so I'm always watching and reading people. And when it, when it dawned on me, we were doing a good job as I went and spoke on Sunday night at a wild game supper. I think it was a Sunday and it wasn't that far from here. And I try to say, you know, yes to them. And it was at a church and I got up and I got some, I'm, I can't, I'm not going to, you know, preach the gospel or quote scripture. I'm not qualified, but I am a believer and I've got some unbelievably cool, uh, divine intervention stories. So I did my talk and this lady came up to me afterwards and she had four little boys with her, just stair step, you know, and, uh, like 12 and 10, whatever. And she said, she said, I want to tell you something. I have, put your podcast on all my little boys' phones. And I went, really? She said, yes, they just love the outdoors. And I can they can listen to yours. I don't have to worry about anything being said they don't need to hear. Uh, you know, it's G-rated. And that wasn't by design. It's just kind of how we roll. But after I thought about that, I said, you know, there's a that's kind of our niche now because some of the real – high dollar podcast out there you'll be listening along and being entertained and boom they'll drop you know a terrible word and i'm like why there's no need in that and that probably sounds silly to some people these days but i've always had that 
respect level, and that's just how we were raised. And you guys certainly are on that page. And all I can tell you to do is stick to it because the you know the content's there. It's all about getting some breaks and promoting, and it's so hard to promote podcasts now because there's ten thousand of them. There's like five thousand in our category, and uh, you just got to stick to it. And if you do that. Uh, that relentless attitude will pay off. It's, uh, nobody's, uh, got that one super podcast. It's not like hitting a grand slam home run. You got to keep them singles coming and be consistent. And it's just like a a YouTube channel. It'll grow. And as soon as people find it and they can listen to it going down the road with their kids, it'll take off. I can promise you that. I think that's the biggest thing right out of the gate. We decided to do a podcast that we wanted to be able to share it with folks that's got kids that can ride down the road with them as a family man and and spending time with their children going to deer camp or whatever it may be. They hear enough of that bad stuff in the world. They don't have to hear it coming out of our mouths. And we'll slip up every once in a while and say a a little bit of a bad word, but none of that real bad stuff that that everybody seems to have to speak anymore. And it sure is nice. And we got a picture uh, earlier this week of a young girl that's a friend of ours daughter going to school for hat day and she had on our hat and our hoodie with our brand wow. on it and she's wearing that school and she don't never take it off and through everything we've done with this podcast and and hearing the testimonies come from amazing people and their their walks with faith or whatever it may be in their endeavors in the outdoors some of our greatest memories founded on it have been from the children we've been able to actually show a little bit of experience and maybe give them a little piece of those old tales that you spoke of. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> you know, just don't change, don't change anything. It'll, it'll happen. Uh, you know, some people spend money to promote their podcast. It takes a long time because there's a lot out there and, uh, you know, it, you just got to keep that name out there and promote it wherever you can and get good at social media and join other pages and, and promote it and, once people see what your content is, they'll 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 come on board. There's a it's a it's a great vehicle, great format. I read a thing the other day that I think it said forty percent of the U.S. forty percent of the people in the U.S. over I forgot what the age was thirteen have listened to a podcast in the last week, and that that's pretty amazing right there. That's so right. It's a good vehicle. It is. Cause we we always ask everybody this. Take us all the way back to the very beginning before anything started. As far as you you didn't even have a job then, but you you were passionate about the outdoors. Where did that start, and who got you into it? Yeah, I'm sure this was way before any of y'all were born. I'm not sure your dads were born. <laughs> then, my, my dad was a uh, 20 year army guy, and uh, he loved the fish. He was the and I tell people they still. He's not with us anymore. He's gone home to be with the Lord. But he was the best fisherman I ever knew that never owned a boat. And uh, we used to fish. I lived in Natchez, Mississippi, southwest, uh, right on the Mississippi River. And across the Mississippi River into Louisiana is where the Corps Engineers built the, the levee system. And while they were building that levee, they were digging dirt, digging dirt. And we used to go, well, I call them the bar pits. The proper name is the borrow because they were borrowing dirt to build the levee. And, uh, of course, on the riverside, and when the river would, you know, flood, it would fill those bar pits up with fish. And that's where I followed, I couldn't tell you how many steps, but he was a great fisherman. And 
that's where my love of the outdoors started was fishing. He didn't actually hunt a lot. He would go with us a little bit. We lived pretty close to the Homachita National Forest, Sandy Creek Wildlife Refuge, all public. And for whatever reason, <clears throat> I just fell in love with it. I went out there with my older brother and some of his buddies. And, buddy, when I got a driver's license, it was on. That's just what I did. I, I loved it. Everything about it, it just, it just flew all over me. My senior year in high school, I missed 46 days during the fall. They'd <laughs> <laughs> know you out of school right now. His <laughs> office, and he, he called me strict. He said, Strick, you miss one more day, you're not, you're not walking, which means I wasn't going to graduate and walk down with my classmates. So I had to tighten up. But I, it, it, I was just one of those people that just flew all over me, everything about it. And, uh, it just, it just stuck with me. You know, I, I, I can't tell you where that came from other than my dad keeping me outside fishing all the time. It was just, uh, it was just kind of what I did, you know, and I tried to, Back then, there wasn't any internet, and there wasn't, you know, places to get information. You just had to figure things out and maybe, you know, read Outdoor Life. But even those kind of magazines back then, you would never see an article from the Deep South. You know, it was elk and whitetails up in Maine and Wisconsin and stuff like that. So I don't know why. It was just divine intervention. God just, you know, he touched me and said, you're going you're gonna to love this. Yeah. And that's kind of where it started. When you when you kept taking that when you kept taking that with you kept going out in the outdoors what drove you to I guess I'm asking what 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 started the mossy oak for you? <clears throat> well, I was working at the time at a sporting goods store, and when the first video camera came out that you could actually carry, it was an old VHS camera. It came to Sears, Sears and Roebuck. There's a, an old name for it. But one of my buddies bought that camera and brought it up there. And and we kind of, the first thing we did was like, man, we're going to go, it was turkey season. I said, man, we're going to go film a turkey hunt. And I had never seen a hunting video, not at that time. So we camouflaged that thing up. We put, if I remember right, we put some duct tape on it and, <laughs> you know, kind of got some magic markers and pinned some leaves and stuff on it. And I, I just enjoyed the heck out of that. I was going turkey hunting every day before work. And uh, and I still have the original VHS tape from that first year or two. I found some turkeys getting shot. And one day I sent that VHS tape. I was buying turkey calls from Primo's. And at the time, it was just Will. And Will was making those things at night, true doubles. But he had one thing, and it was a true double mouth call. And I sent him that VHS tape, and he called me one day. <clears throat> And won't know could I film a turkey hunt with a bigger camera? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and he had went to a TV station, WLBT, and he bought a TV camera. And this thing was, in your wildest dreams, you can't imagine how big and heavy all this stuff was. But he brought it down there. They'd been trying to do it. And uh, anyway, I kind of started fooling with that thing and figured out how to turn it on. This one... <clears throat> It had an on-off switch on the camera, a giant cord that went to a tape deck that took a tape that was three-quarters of an inch thick, about 10 inches or 11 inches long. It was huge. And you had to punch, uh, you had to turn the recording deck on, hit play and record. Then you had to turn the camera on and hit the record. It was a massive undertaking. And anyway, that's the first thing I, you know, my first professional videography thing. I did that kind of one spring. 
off and on for him and uh you know, ended up I went to work for him. We did that first video, The Truth About Spring Turkey Hunting and you know, nobody knew that that thing's a like a cult movie now. There's so many people <laughs> everywhere I go I hear about that, you know, and we didn't know at the time it was gonna have that kind of impact, but it it did. It was the first turkey hunt. The only other video I saw out there at the time was from Genia Barry Winslow. They had one on deer hunting called Bow Hunting October Whitetails. And I literally bought a VCR on a 12 month payment plan to watch that video. And I, 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 I must have watched it a thousand times. I couldn't believe somebody was filming that. Now, cause. And that's not impactful to you guys, but back then you can't imagine nobody had ever seen anything like that. Uh, on their TV, so that it just kind of stuck. I enjoyed that and kept doing it. You you left a little part out on that video camera. Now that I've read on that thing, you said it weighed about eighty five pounds, and it was better than a Jenny Craig uh, program for for weight loss. I believe you said you had a backpack and an ammo belt like thing to tote the batteries, yeah. didn't you? <laughs> it was crazy. I had the, the camera and the tripod had wooden legs, and that tripod head was. A true fluid head, meaning back then it was made out of lead and filled with oil. <laughs> so I had a shotgun sling from the top of the camera to the bottom leg of the tripod, and the the recording deck. I put it on a army backpacking frame, and I would put the backpack on, and then I would sling that shotgun sling tied to the camera and the tripod <laughs> over my head. And it did. It weighed about eighty five pounds. So it was. It's a little easier to do now. I still post stuff up on YouTube and all that, and about two-thirds of that I can shoot with my phone. But back then, it was a back-breaking task, I promise. Oh, yeah, I read where you had had walked the hills carrying all that stuff, and we complain about carrying a 10-pound lock on a deer stand now, and it's you was toting that thing around like it wasn't nothing. But I think that goes – into what you were saying about your passion for it. You were passionate about wanting to do something, and no matter the cost, no matter the weight, no matter what it took, you was willing to make it happen to to chase your passion. That's right. You know, <clears throat> the first uh, when we decided to do it for deer, <clears throat> we drew, me and Troy Ruiz drew uh, on a napkin, if I remember right, what an arm and base would look like, and we got a welder to make a, <laughs> A thing up in, you know, in a tree had a big ratchet strap like you use on an 18 wheeler, not a little one. And, uh, we, they actually built, we built one out of angle iron. And it was so heavy that you'd have to get your stand hung and then hang a pulley up there. And you would bring that stuff up one piece at a time, hook it to the tree. So that, I, you know, I appreciate video now because it's so much better, but I really appreciate it back then when, other people started doing it, and I would see they had it nice and smooth and stuff. Cause, you know, I was always, uh, you know, interested in how they did it and all that kind of stuff. So we, it was it was no manuals to do it back then. There wasn't any examples. Uh, when we started Moss Hills Hunting the Country on TNN in 94, 95, there really wasn't a hunting show out there other than American Sportsman. There was a, a bunch of fishing shows, you know, Hank Parker and Bill Dancer. Those guys have been doing it for a while, but <clears throat> fishing shows a little easier. I mean, everything takes place underwater, and you can't see it. And, uh, <laughs> Fake it till you make it. Like that, you know. They want to see the deer come in and all that. But I was blessed to be around some really smart people back in those days, and 
figured out what it took to get it on television, which is, you know, that's, that's how, that's why people finish, uh, or that's how they recognize Mossy Oak from those hunting the country days. That's a, that was an interesting story pulling that off too. So. When was your first, uh, when did the first time you met Toxie and Mr. Fox? You know, I was working, like I said, at a sporting goods store <clears throat> and I had gone to the, the first shot show Toxie and them had ever attended. They hadn't been in business a year yet. And him and Bill Suggs were at the shot show. And I think that year it was in Houston. It wasn't as big as it is now. And my wife was with me and she actually, we had separated looking at other stuff. She came, she, she told me, she said, there's a couple of guys down in the basement, literally. <clears throat> had a small booth and she said they got a camel pattern they're from mississippi so i just kind of ran down there and i was walking up on that booth they had a big column kind of right in the middle of the booth they had wrapped it in that bottom lane and i looked at that and stared at it and went wow man that would look good in the turkey wood i just knew it and went down there and introduced myself to him uh, toxie and bill so who's now bill's the president of the company he's also toxie's brother-in-law <clears throat> and uh Wrote an order, if I remember right, for the hunting the store I was working at. And I was so excited about that stuff, I went back and, you know, I was showing it to everybody. I had taken some Polaroid pictures of whoever, I think it was my friend Bubba, standing in the woods by a tree, and I would have a display. And I was selling that stuff and reordering and selling and reordering. And Toxie called me one day, and he, he, he called me Ronnie, and he said, hey, Ronnie, you're, you're selling more than us. You, you got to come to work for us. So I came up to West Point and met with him, and two weeks later, I was working for him. And uh, yeah, yeah, Bob Dixon, God rest his soul, he's moved on. And he had Alabama, and Bill Suggs was covering Mississippi, and I had everything and anything else, you know, which meant Louisiana and Arkansas. As far as I wanted to travel to try to sell Mossy Oak, and it was not easy. Did Back you, then, nobody knew what it was. Did you come to join? Sorry, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, it was uh, Bob Dixon. He went into Georgia. But what, there's several things that changed, uh, or as Toxie would say, put the second store on the office building. One is we kept pushing forward, <clears throat> and Browning came on board, and they picked our pattern to put on Browning clothes and Browning guns. And, of course, that gives you instant respect and clout. And then we ended up launching the Hunt in the Country in 94 or something like that. And when you have a, a TV back then, it was not a bunch of channels. TNN was huge. Country music, NASCAR, hunting and fishing. That was about it. So the hunting and fishing stuff on TNN was huge. And we aired on their network, I think it was in 94. And, uh, that, that's, that's kind of what turned everything out. But since then, it's just been a sideways. Did you, um, what was like? What was it like going out and doing all those big sales? Because you, I mean, you didn't even come from that kind of background. You just stayed in a store. So, how was it getting out and just approaching folks and trying to sell that? Yeah, it was different. You know, uh, <clears throat> my company vehicle was a nineteen eighty three Delta eighty eight Oldsmobile. Yes, sir, four door. That was a two door. Oh we god, it the tank. <laughs> we called it the tank. It had that high drop. The the trunk lid was so heavy had a hydraulic pump on it. Mine didn't work. <laughs> so I would have to lift that trunk out. And I had a, an oak stick about big around as a baseball bat, four feet tall. I'd open that trunk and stick that stick up on there to get my samples out. <laughs> and I can remember clearly if I sold, I, I can remember stopping somewhere in Arkansas to pay phone. 
nobody had cell phones back then, and I I I called Fox. They do. I just sold two hundred and sixty five dollars, and he's like, "You're kidding." I went, "No, man, I sold two hundred and sixty five dollars." It was a struggle, but uh, you know, we were relentless. Taki was very relentless and a good guy at marketing. That's what his education was in. And he called me in his office one day and he gave me this 45 minute spill about PR. Because back at the time, you know, Ben Rogers Lee was getting all this ink. And I don't know if y'all remember who that was, but he was from Coffeyville, Alabama. He was the first superstar in the turkey world. And, uh, Night and Hell were good at it, and he gave me this feel about we got to do this and we got to do that. And he got to, he said, "You're the guy," and I said, "I'm in, brother." I said, "What's PR stand for?" <laughs> I, didn't, I, I didn't really have the concept of what he was talking about. Anyway, we started. Uh, I started taking these outdoor riders hunting. I went to the first Outdoor Riders Association of America (OWA) convention, set up a little booth, and. I would I picked some guys out because I was a big fan of reading about it, and we would take these outdoor riders hunting, and they would write stories and take their pictures, and we'd all be in Mossy Oak, and that's that's how we did PR. And uh, you know, we didn't have the money early on to buy big ads and stuff like that, but man, that uh, the outdoor press not any different than what you guys are doing. Media is media, no matter how it's delivered, but. That's that's how we really got started was dealing with outdoor riders and taking them hunting and and when I say take them hunting I mean we took them hunting and cook farm and you know trailed up gut shot deer and cleaned up you know we it was work but it's like he whiz I can't believe I'm getting paid it never felt like a job and to this day I don't feel like I've had a job in 35 years when when did it actually like kick in and you're like man I've I've done pretty good for myself as as missing all those days in school and, and I, I've just, I've done very well for myself and, it, and this is what it's about. Never have. I, I, I refuse to think about that. Gotcha. Uh, <clears throat> I just won't. I mean, I, I you know, I, I was able to buy a little farm and the reason I was able to do that is my wife kept working after our kids were out of college and all that. And I had never even dreamed, you know, about owning a, a little piece of land. That was like, that's like seeing Bigfoot. I just think, you don't even, you don't think about that when you're raised, you know, with not a lot. But, uh, you know, I, even to, and to this day, I don't, I don't step out on that, my farm and go, oh, look at this. Mm-hmm. I just refuse to let that leak into my brain because I'm always thinking, you know, God's going to give you a left hook and say, start over. And, uh, I don't want to be anything but thankful and humble. So I, I still don't, I, I really don't think like that. It didn't feel like a job even when you're staying in them $9 hotels down in uh, Florida punching on the buttons. Uh-uh. Yeehaw Junction. I rode by there and put it in a video. I rode by there not long ago going to one of those wounded vet hunts, and they were tearing the hotel down, and I stopped and took a a selfie and posted <laughs> that right there, friends, is worth a $9 hotel room. They had a sign outside that said motel room, $10. And I pulled in there and I said, and I, I looked at the guy, he looked up and I said, $10? And he said, okay, nine. $9. Now, it wasn't much. Uh, I can remember going in there and I had some samples with me and I laid the samples out on the bed. 
and I slept on top of that. And I didn't go anywhere near the bathroom, but yeah, it was. Uh, it, it wasn't all wine and cheese back in the day. I promise you, there was some. Uh, we used to have contests, me and Bob Dixon and Bill Suggs, to see who could stay in the cheapest motel. And I don't think I ever lost that. <laughs> oh, if you was ever around Eatonton, Georgia, and stayed in the General Putnam Inn, you could get them for twenty five dollars a night, even when we was going to, to Middle Georgia. So I know yeah. we know the feeling on that. Gotcha. Well, you know that's that's how stores are made. You know, and uh, the people love to hear the. That's why I made Dan Moultrie. He was a guest last week, and. I made him tell the story that I knew is when he got started, he couldn't get any money. He couldn't, the bank wouldn't loan him anything. They're like, what is a spin feed or not? And he had five, four or five credit cards maxed out buying metal and stuff like that. But you know, that's a big roll of the dice, but people like to hear that, especially when they're, they have a successful end to them. And, you know, that's, that's kind of what built the country. There's plenty of them kind of stories out there. You just don't hear them. I think it's folks with gravel in their crawl, so to speak, that built the country, that the stories like that are coming back to prevalent attention. The stories like you share of your exploits back staying in $9 hotels. People hear that today, and they're thinking, $9 ain't no way. And here yeah. we are paying nearly $3 and a half for a gallon of gas when you would buy it for less than a quarter when you was coming up. Yeah, it's something, <clears throat> you know, and, and, and if you've lived through that, it doesn't seem that odd, but I catch myself because I'm surrounded by, you know, I don't even know what the name is, you know, Generation X, whatever, Millennial, whatever, and I'll say something just in a conversation and they'll look at me and then it dawns on me that they got no idea who, you know, Barney Fife was. I might tell a Barney Fife joke and they'll look at me like, but, it, you know, it, and that's okay. You just got to explain to them who Barney Fife and uh, Aunt B was and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, some some old school stuff is okay. I don't live in the past. I'm always brushing up on my social media skills. But some of it's okay because some of it was better. And uh, they need to know there's, there's people out there that live through that and can help them make good decisions. I think that's what the – especially the – I got a pretty big Instagram account, and Lauren showed me something not long ago. She said, Pop, your followers are like between 15 and 33 years old. And I went, what? It, I got a lot of faith in that generation because they seem to be very inquisitive and want to know, you know, how how things went down. They want to do the right thing. I, 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 just, I just feel that, and I may be wrong. I don't have any scientific data or anything to go with that, but... I just feel like, you know, that, that really young generation is, is going to help straighten things out. I, I do feel like when I, I walk up on a younger person, I almost need to apologize because the shape the country's in and say, hey, sorry, I didn't do it. You know, I'm working hard for you, but it is what it is. And I think you, you've hit the nail on the, hell cu- uh, on the head, cuz, by saying the generational gap needs to be closed with folks like you getting into social media because there is such an audience. You have an audience at your fingertips that can see so much of the past, and there's so many people that don't embrace that. They don't take it by the horns, and they don't say, hey, I can talk to 10,000 people 
just by posting one picture, or I can talk to 10,000 people by making a podcast today and talking about my faith, talking about the struggles that I came up with, and the learning that folks can get from that. We were fortunate enough to grow up in a place around those folks just like yourself, hearing those stories, but there's a lot of people in the world that didn't. And then when you embrace that platform like you do, you don't know what it means to guys like us that see so much negative in the world and then have a positive like yourself shine a little bit of a beacon of light to that younger generation that will take from that and grasp and hold on to it. It's, it, it is inspiring, and, and we appreciate that you recognize that at your age. Not to call you old or nothing, but it is. Hey, it is. Feel, you know what it is. I, <laughs> I am old. <laughs> I'm 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 blessed to be here. <clears throat> you know, I've been blessed to stay pretty healthy and still you know, I went hunting day four yesterday in the afternoon spent two and a half hours in the ground blind, you know. I, I didn't get up in a ladder or nothing. I was kinda you know, just wanting to watch the sunset, but I man, I'm I was dialed in, ready to roll. You know, I went ahead and put my cleaning rack up before I went down there, I disassemble that thing every year. And uh shoot, I'm I'm good to go. I still have a fire for it now. My priorities have changed with these grandsons. I don't want to go to any of my good spots because they're, you know, they're just now finishing up with football. One of them plays baseball, travel baseball. I'm saving them four o'clock does that wait out there for them, but I still love it. I always have. And, uh, and you can't make them have the passion that you do for the outdoors. They may get it and they may not, but what you can do is offer them the chance. And you got to offer them things that keep them busy because they have lots of distractions. So around here, you know, we, we do chores and we're, we're kind of restoring an old pickup truck and they help work on that old 1951 tractor. We cut firewood all day Saturday and everybody was sore Sunday. And, but you know, they, they need when they're little men, they need to learn from older men what it's like to be a man. And that's not not saying anything bad about women. But, you know, men need to act like men. And sometimes they just, they need to see it. Kids learn by watching. I tell people all the time, you're not going to have this defining moment with your children where they get it. They're going to learn how to be a, a person by watching how you roll. And they watch you all the time. So just. It's just like I used to tell the videographers that I'd hire those young guys. At one time, we had five TV shows running. Three of them were 52 weeks a year. You can't, in your wildest dreams, imagine how much work that was. I had nine or ten guys filming. And I would just tell them, look, here, here's, I'd give them a shoot list. You got to get this, this, and this. And I said, just act like your mama's standing behind you. And you won't ever have any issues with me. Just, just, and I, they loved it. I, I'm still friends with most of all those guys now. They're grown and have families of their own. But, I, you know, you, I learned from my dad's buddies and my uncle and stuff like that. And kids need, they need some, I think they're looking for people like that who they can just, they can just trust. Most people who have big social media sites now and Facebook pages and all that, every post they're selling you something. Is hashtag this bow, hashtag this whatever. And I, and I look at those and go, people see right through that. And, and I don't do that. They know I work for Mossy Oak. I'm going to talk about Mossy Oak all the time, but I'm not going to get on there and hashtag 
I use this and I use that and all that because they, I think they can see right through it. And, and we need people out there they can look at and go, I think he's staring me straight. You know, that's, I think about that anyway. I may be way off. That's coming coming from a good source. <laughs> uh, you exactly right, Nick. It is, and I think he hit the nail on the head with people seeing right through. And I think we take it all the way back to to what he said at the beginning of the episode. It's it it it, it sticks with me so much. When we started this, we said we was going to be true to ourselves, and to hear somebody like Ronnie Cuz Strickland say it, stay true to yourself. Mm-hmm. Or people are going to see right through it. Hey, well, I couldn't ask for it, it to just, be no more than that. And it goes son. back to hard work. I mean, it doesn't matter. You you max out five credit cards like Dan Moultrie, and then you got a you got an empire now. You know, be careful maxing them out today. <laughs> the interest rates eat you alive. <laughs> but just the hard work you put into it, and and because like you said, I believe people like those old stories, and I know that's kind of what you you know that's the best part to me when I listen to Fistful of Dirt is those old stories. And I know before we got started on here, we started talking about the Braves now that they're in the World Series. So I'd like for you to share a few stories with us, if you don't not mind, about some some old times. <laughs> well, you know. <clears throat> and you are a Braves fan. Doing. You are a Braves fan, right? Oh, yeah. You got no idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, back in the day, I was doing the PR or whatever, the fan mail or people with pictures. That stuff ended up on my desk more more often than not and you know like again you know it was all mail back then you'd write somebody a letter and put a picture in there but anyway i had some of that stuff sitting on my desk and my wife walked by she's worked for the company forever way smarter than i am but she she looked down she said you know who that is in that picture there was a picture there with a short little note nothing and i glanced at it. she said that's the catcher for the braids and i went what and i picked it up and looked at it the little note said, great camo, catch you later, Charlie O'Brien. And I just kind of fell back in my seat. <laughs> and I was like, that is him. And uh, <clears throat> had his address and everything. And I think he had a phone number. But anyway, I called him. And he was like, yeah, man, I bought this so-and-so. And, and I started telling him, and this is a true story. I said, I can't believe I'm talking to you. I had girls, and they were both. When they were little, we couldn't afford a lot, but every year we would either go to the Astrodome, the Houston Astrodome, or to the Atlanta and watch the Braves. That was our vacation. And uh, I, I was telling him all this stuff, and he was like, dude, y'all got to come to a game. And I said, yeah, we, we were coming anyway at some point. So anyway, he, has, when I, he, he says, come to this game right here and go to the wheel call, and I didn't know what that was. Anyway, we went over there and went to wheel call, and we had seats, uh, four tickets, right behind home plate, sitting next to his wife, Tracy. And I was like, I, I, I was just like having an out-of-body experience. And they played a couple of innings, and then it started raining. And, of course, they cleared the field, and they backed us up kind of up underneath the awning a little bit, was old Turner Field. And I'm looking at, and Tracy gets my attention. She's talking to my wife. That's Charlie O'Brien's wife. And, I, and she points down there, and he's standing in the dugout waving and flagging me down there. And then this uh, usher comes and gets me, takes me around to the dugout. And Charlie said, come down here and hang out with us while this rain delays. It's only going to be another hour or so. And I'm walking back down there. I go in the locker room, and I'm sitting there talking to Charlie O'Brien, Greg Maddox, and Bobby Cox. 
And I know I just sat there with my mouth open. I kept having to shut it with my left hand. And, but, and I was like, this to me, that was the coolest thing ever. I never dreamed anything like that would happen to me. But we we got to be big buddies. And uh, he actually invited me to the uh, the year they won the World Series. They were playing Cincinnati in the NLCS. And uh, I got down there early, and I took the big camera. We were I was going to film in deer hunting right after that. Had a wireless mic on them while they were taking batting practice and was filming all this. And then all of a sudden, I kind of lost sight of Charlie, and uh, they came and ran us off the field. We had me a spot in the AP box, Associated Press. It was a big, tight square between the dugout and home plate where those photographers sat or stood up with those big cameras. I had a spot in there. I'm like, that's cool. And, and it dawned on me that Charlie didn't give me my wireless mic back. And I went, well, I'll never see that again. Them things were like 1200 bucks. So I'm sitting there, and I filmed a couple of innings, you know, and just acted like I was supposed to be there. And I got headphones on, so I looked professional. Anyway, third inning, Charlie comes up. He's batting like eight. Hitting one never his deal, although he had a big night that night. He walks up to I see him coming, and I hear, I see him, and I hear the microphone click on. He still got the wireless mic on under his uniform. And he walks in. I'm filming. He walks up to the on deck circle, and he's swinging them bats. He looks straight up at the camera. He said, hey, y'all stay tuned. Hunting the country will be right back. Oh, <laughs> dang. There you go. Awesome. Can you believe that? No, wow. sir. I, in the middle of a World Series, and his old and buddy meant enough to Or NLCS. Yeah. So that's headed that way. So I, I still got the footage. I still got it on a three It's on a beta tape. And he, he he was that's how cool he was. He didn't get excited or anything else. I filmed him that bad. He's like grounded out or something. But in that game, and you can look it up, ninety nine, he hit a three run homer, and they they beat Cincinnati three to nothing. And uh, I, I was like, that may be the coolest thing that ever happened while I was making TV. But I was they, him and his uh, one of his brothers and his son Cameron were just here at my farm a month ago. Cameron loves to play golf, and his brother John does. I mean, we're still close friends. And uh, I got to see some cool stuff around Charlie because he kind of made me a part of that. You know, the the dude, he caught 12 or 13 Cy Young pitchers. And uh, nobody will ever get close to that. We took I, we took Roger Clemens. Well, I, I filmed Roger Clemens, the Rocket. That may not be a big name to you guys. Oh, it is. Oh, it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But the rocket was unbelievable. I filmed him killing a deer in Illinois. And at the end of the thing, we're going to do an interview. Back then, the beta tapes finally would last 60 minutes. And I was talking to him and all that. And filmed, and I put a new tape in. And the last question I had, I said, well, tell me about your battery mate there, Charlie O'Brien. 60 minutes later, the tape ran out. He was still talking about Charlie O'Brien. Wow. And I, after that interview, I realized how good Charlie was. And he told me stuff like, he, he said, Charlie knew every umpire by name, their kids' names and all that. He said, Charlie would have me an inch or two on the plate or three or four strikes before the game ever started. And he, he didn't call him a catcher. He called him receivers. And he was talking about how good Charlie received the ball and all that and and I was like, man, there's so many little things in baseball you never see 
or never know. And to hang around Charlie now, you just think he's this big old redneck from Oklahoma. Buddy, he was he was revered by those pictures that he caught. So <clears throat> I got a really good inside track on the Atlanta Braves and got the, and you know he got me tickets to the World Series that year and I wouldn't go because his family is so big. He's got like eight or nine brothers and sisters, and I said, Charlie, man, bless your heart. God bless you for doing that. And I'm not going to use them tickets because I knew all his family was going to go, but I could have went to the World Series that year. I just didn't. So I'm a, I'm a pretty long-standing Braves fan. <laughs> Y'all still talk today? Yeah, he was just at my farm a month ago. They stayed here four days. And uh, <clears throat> I talked to him about once a week. I took all my grandsons up there in April. He's got a ranch to catch 22. And he's a deer guy. He's not a turkey guy, but he lets us, he, he'll let me go up there and turkey him. He's got some Rio's. <clears throat> and I took all my three, my grandsons up there and their dad. And my middle grandson is a tractor truck nut. And he's hung up on square bodies and, I had never paid any attention. Lo and behold, over there in the weeds, there was a uh, an old GMC or a Chevy pickup truck. And I went over there, and my middle grandson, Matt, was looking at it, crawling all over it. Well, his turkey hunt's over by now. He's just thinking. <laughs> and anyway, Charlie was saying, she said, that was my Paul-in-law's truck. He said, he parked it there like 12 years ago, and it, something's wrong with it. And Matt was like, man, this thing, you could probably run again. And Charlie said, you want that truck? And Matt just looked at him and said, you can have it, you can get it home. So uh, I paid to have that truck down here. It's a 1980 K-10 four-wheel drive long wheelbase. We got that thing running. It runs like a top. We're fixing to start on the, the outside of it next. But I send him a picture every day. I do something to it, and I'll send him the picture. And uh, his mom, my daughter, Lauren, the one y'all doing with, she had him a tag for Christmas. It says, uh, and we call the truck Old Blue, and the front tag says, Old Blue from the Catch-22. <laughs> ah, awesome. Oh, well, well that, yeah, that... I, I got wrapped up in baseball. I took a bunch of baseball guys hunting that Charlie knew, you know, just Alex Gonzalez and Travis Fryman, just all kind of people, And because uh, I was a big baseball guy, but yeah. Did you do any the hunting with Bobby? Uh, did you do any hunting no, with Bobby? Bobby Cox didn't. He wasn't a hunter, but he did talk about turkeys on his house. He had, you know, a hundred acres or something around Atlanta, and he talked about feeding the turkeys and all that stuff. But, yeah, uh, there were some big hunters in baseball. Boy, they loved it. they loved turkey hunting because they were they uh, they loved most of them loved deer hunting because they're all tied up during the spring. Yeah, and Charlie, I went down to spring training a couple of times. They would get one day off in spring training, and that's it. And uh, I would go down there and have a turkey hunt lined up and take Charlie. Or one year we took Pat Hinkin. I don't know if y'all remember him. He won the Cy Young one year. Took him on his first turkey hunt. It was a special time, but you know, that, that was part of the hunting the country legacy. Well, if there's one, <clears throat> if there's one thing that old blue truck has brought you is a uh, you ain't shade tree mechanic no more because you got you a beautiful shop coming up together. <laughs> well. It's, it's not quite finished. I, <laughs> I was up at this place today. Uh, <clears throat> we're having a big fundraiser Friday night for Seoul, uh, enforcement organized for law enforcement. We try to raise money for, uh, some groups that help law enforcement, Spirit of Blue and cops and stuff like that. But, uh, when I drove back, the guy that's building, actually building the shop, 
<clears throat> I saw his truck on the highway, so I knew he'd been here and went over there. And he uh, he was gone to get metal. I mean, everything's framed up. The metal rafters are in. The the doors framed. I'm hoping tomorrow he's gonna start putting metal up on it. So I'm gonna. As soon as he starts putting metal up, I'm gonna make another post. I'm more excited about that. You you think I won the lottery because it's got a concrete floor and I'm gonna put electric sockets in there and lights. I'm, I can't <laughs> wait for that finish. Oh my goodness! Well, cuz you you know you've you've took us through your storied history in a little bit as it goes with Mossy Oak and. Anybody that hasn't already listened to uh, A Fistful of Dirt, Episode 1, you tell that full story. And if you want to hear that and, and hear more about that, make sure you go over and tune into that one because it's, it's actually one that I probably enjoyed as any podcast I've ever listened to hearing you and Toxie wow. talk about it. I mean, it was, it was a great story hearing those old tales and how it came from simple, humble beginnings. And, yeah. uh I know Nick is chewing at the bit over here with a turkey question that he's got to fire <laughs> off on. So, uh, I, I, Nick, what well, you know? Alex, hit him with it. Alex steers me away from turkeys during deer season, cause so <laughs> I ain't uh, steered you once tonight. Now you telling lies <laughs> on me right here out of the gate. <laughs> um, you know, if anybody knows you, they know that you're as big a turkey hunter as anybody out there. There's two things that cut stricken lights. That's a water burger and a and a goblin turkey. <laughs> And uh, yes, um, <clears throat> I want you to tell a story real quick, and I and I've I've heard you tell this before, and I want you to tell this. And and there's two types of users, two types of turkey hunters. There's usually one that calls soft and quiet, and there's usually one that calls loud, or doesn't care to make a move. And I feel like Cuz may fall in two after this story he tells, but he's hunting with a good friend of his, and I believe his name's Tom Kelly. Correct? Yeah. And you guys are you? I'll let you tell the story about how you uh introduced him to the tube call <clears throat> well you know tom kelly if, if people who hadn't read the book the 10th legion <clears throat> that was his first book it's i don't even know how to explain to you what what it's like it's like if you read tom kelly's book the 10th legion you just get enthralled and you know then you know what it means to be in the club not a better storyteller in the world so i read that book and he immediately became my favorite writer, number one, I don't read. I, I mean, I'll read a menu from time to time, but I'm just not a reader. And I've read, I read that book every spring. And so when I finally got, I met him, I think it was at the NWTF convention, I was just, it was like I was looking at, you know, Mickey Mantle and I was fixing to play catch or something. It was crazy. I just adored him and admired him, and I was a little, you know, taken aback. And I asked him, you know, I got, he, he liked me, and we talked a little bit, and I asked him, could I film him turkey hunting? And, I, and to me, people like that, and so I'm doing the same thing on podcasts. I just want a record. Like, I wanted a record of Dan Moultrie's story, you know, and stuff. But anyway, he agreed, and I was about to come to his place. He lived in Spanish Fort, Alabama, and they ain't a whole bunch of turkeys. That's way south. Anyway, I figured out had an back then you got around with an atlas and a ink pen and a notebook writing down landmarks. But I found the place, his old hunting club, and we got up to go the next morning. And, and I literally didn't take anything other than video gear. I said, I'm going with Tom Kelly. This is a guy who used to roll up a, a Life magazine. That was his turkey best. But anyway, we uh, we. We go hunting. He's not talking a lot. He ain't sure about this camera gear. And I said, Mr. Kelly, 
I'm just going to sit back behind you and I'll hide myself really good. And I'm just going to film you do what you do. All right. He's a little gruff back then. And, uh, you know, we had a turkey. I think it was two gobbles. And he waited forever. And I knew they had flown down. He got a box stall out and he yapped on it real light. Nothing answered. Yapped on a little bit more. We stayed there for an hour or two and turkeys drifted off and, and we're up walking around, and he had a crow call about the size of a cigarette. It's the tiniest little crow call you ever saw. And he'd blow it, and I promise you, you couldn't hear it 20 feet. <laughs> and that was his locator. And uh, so we moved around, you know. And he didn't hunt a lot in the afternoon. We kind of rode around that afternoon, sat down for a little while. But next morning, we're back in the same spot. And, I mean, my butt prints went right in the same spot I sat in the day before. Heard him saying two turkeys, same thing. Wait, he never called, so they flew down. He yep a little bit on that box, and same thing. So we're walking around. We kind of go in a different direction, and we get down to this beautiful bottom, little creek there. It's not running real fast, so you can hear good. And he blows that crow call, and I said, Mr. Kelly, huh? I said, Would you mind if I yelp one time? I don't give a blank. You know, and <laughs> so I, I reached down under my T-shirt. I did have my tube calling. Turkey gobbled out about 300 yards, and he, he stood and grabbed that lanyard and pulled it toward me. He said, why ain't you been tooting on that damn thing? <laughs> I got the biggest kick out of that. Man, we went and worked with the turkey. We didn't kill him. Got on the wrong side of the creek twice. It was an awesome hunt. But, you know, <clears throat> we got to be pretty good buddies after that, and Toxie and I took him to Texas. I wanted him to see some stuff because he had never hunted except right in there. And we took him to Texas, and he got him a Rio Grande, and I took him to Nebraska. And sat right on the South Dakota line, he killed Miriam, and he just had the best time. And I was just determined to help him see that there was more out there than what he had been accustomed to. And he's, you know, he's written about me in a couple of his books, and there's nothing the biggest, biggest prideful thing in my life was the third book I wrote, uh, The Truth, The Whole Truth, Nothing But The Truth. He wrote the forward, and he talked about, you know, learning there's other ways to do things. Now, he made fun of the tube call because he said, you know, it would bark, knock bark off of trees and stuff like that. But the bottom line is he, 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 he experienced something new, and I'll, 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 I'll be grateful for that forever. Yeah, we got a we got a saying that we always tell people, and and we we do that. We've talked about that before. Like, take those risks and get out. And Alex always says, just go. You know, make the time. If you got to work overtime, get out. There's more to explore than just your state. You know, like you just said. Yeah. Yeah, me and my but my good friend Bubba, <clears throat> same age as I am, sixty seven years old. We loaded up, went to the uh, uh, Nebraska this past spring, hunted public land, just me and him. And buddy, it was crowded. And uh, 100,000 acres, pretty rolling, had a lot of hills on it. And he killed a pig of a turkey on the third day. And I had never been more proud of anything. Is I said, look, ain't many old guys can do that public land. We're staying in one of them 2995 hotels, <laughs> had the best time ever. And there was tons of turkey hunters around. You know, we kept running into people and stuff. And, but it, and it, we weren't going to public ground because – we had something to prove. We grew up hunting on public land. 
it's just I knew where that block was. I'd been in that part of the world a hundred times. I said, I said, brother, that's a hundred thousand acre block. It means you can't find a turkey in there and have fun. And we just load up and went. You know, we wasn't trying to prove nothing to nobody. Is the public land there, which is so big right now? I mean, man, we's doing that forever. Right. You know, back in the day, it's not like that's just the only place we had to go. And you didn't think anything about it. Now it's like a rite of passage because of the hunting public guys and good for them. I'm a huge fan of those guys, but now it's like if people will ask you, if you, you can see pictures people post on Instagram, or whatever, and they'll say public or private, you know, and it's like, what difference does it make? Who cares? You know, it's just hunting's hunting. So, and I think that's a big thing that that hurts the hunting industry today cuz and you probably can speak to this more than anybody is the battle from within. We spend so much time battling against ourselves about who can one up this guy or who's doing it better. If you hunted on private, you didn't do it as good. If you was on public, you gained a little bit more and at the end of the day, we're all just getting out and hunting and we need to be yeah. more fluent and accepting of everybody's ability. If you were gifted an opportunity to hunt on a piece of ground that was private, Good for you. If you went out and yeah. you drove to the middle of that 100,000 block of timber and killed a great deer or a turkey and carried it out, good for you. It's all about making those memories and, and being able to do what you do. Like you said, just go. And I think that's the biggest thing that we need to understand. And I just, it's something that's really stuck in our mind as of late. The, the battles that we wage against each other as hunters. And I don't think it's as bad as what everybody thinks it is. It's just so right in our face with social media as everything is. Yeah. Yeah. Instant gratification. So I, it, I, you know, maybe it's getting a little better. <clears throat> it's not as bad as it used to be, but, uh, you know, that's why you, you can go back to every hunt in the country episode ever made. <clears throat> and I can promise you, cause I produced them never one deer scored that I can remember. Nobody posted a score for it. I think I always hated that. Uh, and yet, were we going for old, you know, mossy horns? Yeah, heck yeah. <laughs> but it didn't happen like that that often. I think that goes okay. along with everything that we've been trying to, to do with this show is go out and make a memory and don't look at it as a successful trip. If just you took a deer, just you took a turkey, and Dave yeah. Owens was on our show, and, and I think it's something we've Ooh. talked about a lot. Is That's a killer. Yes, yeah, he is. Yes, he is. And, and he said it best, take a drink, not a sip. Wherever you go yeah. and whatever you do, soak it all in. Make the most of those memories and make the most of those moments because at some point you're not going to be able to do it anymore. And at some point somebody somewhere is going to be jealous of what you're doing and maybe not because they are hating on it or, or looking down on it, but just for the simple reason that they can't physically, mentally, financially, whatever it may be, and mount those memories just like we always say. Cause I know he's we're got a good point. He talks about public land <clears throat> and he's good at it. I mean nobody's but I mean that's a guy. Let me tell you something. My cheese meter is finely tuned. I can tell if somebody's the real deal or not from a mile away he's the real deal and he'll say real quick a turkey don't know if he's on public or private land he said there may be a little more hunt personal he don't make a big deal about it everybody else does you yeah. know and he's 
he's uh, I got nothing but admiration for that guy. And uh, he's awful young, but buddy, he he he's a turkey killing machine. I've always I said if I have a you know any kind of talent for turkey, and there's two things. One is I can make one gobble a long way away, and that's all about that tube call. And that's the way I like to do it. And I'm pretty relentless about, I think I can find one. Eddie Salter's like that. Eddie Salter's somebody, he, he thinks he can kill a turkey at the parking lot at the mall. <laughs> he never, never gives up. And that's the difference than, you know, a turkey killer and a turkey hunter that, you know, a turkey killer gets to that creek and he's like, hmm. You know, and then he puts his wallet in his mouth and holds his head, hand over his gun over his head. He waves it, you know, or he gets to that giant mountain, that hill, and he's like, man, if I could get to the top and yelp on the other side, you know, and that's, that's, turkey hunting's 99% attitude. Now, I catch a lot of grief about the tube call. People don't understand it until you go with me. You don't understand how far a turkey will gobble at that. Badly, I can't hear him as far as I used to. But I, to me, that's victory. If I can make a turkey answer that, man, I've had a great day. So it's uh, I, I'm I'm pretty good about soaking it all in. I promise. Is there something that you haven't done yet that you would like to do? Because in the outdoor, yeah, you know, I had a I had a, a, a bucket list one time, and one of the things was to film a moose hunt. And I checked that off the list, and uh, I forgot what the something else. The one thing I never did that I, I, I and I kind of thought about maybe I was going to get it done last year was to film a turkey strutting in the snow, and I don't mean a turkey strutting while it's snowing. I mean one strutting in the snow, right? Like a foot of pack snow. I never did that, and I got so close in South Dakota one time. We were out there and it snowed like crazy, and the. I had to wait for a couple of days for the sun to come out, the wind to quit blowing. Here in Turkey, and the first turkeys I got up on, I was like sitting up against this big boulder. And they were down around this little creek then, and man, they were gobbling. And I could hear them. And, uh, and they just shut up. And I was like, well, I don't know what happened with that. And back then, the cameras were huge. They had a giant high peak. You know, they wouldn't have a flip-out screen. It was a big viewfinder. And then I hear that strutting, and it's right behind me. And I, I got my hand up on the camera, for whatever, and I could see the reflection of three turkeys 10 feet behind me strutting back and forth in the snow. And I finally, I couldn't stand no more, and I turned the camera on, slowly turned it around there, and they were they were gone. I spooked them or something. But if I got one thing left on my list, that'd probably be it. You know, it was... A strutting turkey in the snow to film that. That doesn't sound like much. It's just one of the things I never did. Tell us, tell us a little bit about the mossy oak go out, real quick. You know the mossy oak go out <clears throat> again. Toxie, uh, he's always been real forward thinking. I tell people all the time, Toxie, he's four innings in front of everybody on the ball game. He's really smart. And as good as we were at TV and as much as we produced TV for us and other people, he saw that social media thing coming way before most people in the hunting industry. And as we uh, turned more towards social media, his sons, you know, Daniel and Neil worked there. And Daniel kind of runs all the social media stuff. And 
Spikes was always real big on trying to control what he could. Even when we were on trying to get on TNN, he said, we need to figure out how to edit that stuff here. We need to control as much as we can. And dealing with networks was always unbelievably painful. Big networks didn't care, none of them, <clears throat> about, you know, hunting and fishing. If it made them money, that's cool and all that. But when he saw, you know, how YouTube was doing this and everything, he, he kind of set aside a lot of time and the money to develop kind of what has turned into our own network. You know, it's a, it's a, it's an unbelievably challenged technology wise to get that done. But we've been working on it for two or three years now and we had that Monday night. Well, it's Wednesday right now for deer. We have that night where we have all the new stuff come in. We call it, you know, Wednesday Night Live. And it's uh, lots of people sending in because that thing has grown up to where it's its own network now. And we can kind of control what we want to put on there. And uh, we don't have to worry about, you know, this sponsor or that sponsor. So uh, it's turned into quite the vehicle for us. A lot of people send their stuff in and they say we get more views here than we do at other places, and, and hey, we're hunting guys. You never know when a big social media mobile be it, whoever, YouTube or Google or Instagram, somebody shut it down and say, look, we're not doing any more hunting. That's, you know, they, they could pull the rug out from under us tonight. We nothing you can do about it. So the Mossy Oak Go app, guess what? We're hunters. We're going to show what we want. So, again, Tasha was way ahead of the curve on that. I, I credit him and his team with that. Yeah, I, I enjoy watching. I, I always catch up on my turkey hunting during turkey season, my deer hunting now, so it's a great great app to go watch. Cuz there's there's a thousand things that we could talk about and I know we're running running long here. Um and the Braves are playing currently, so I know yourself Uh-oh. I know yourself and us wants probably both get in there and watch it. I always yeah, I can ask barely hear it in the other room in there, but I can't tell what happened. <laughs> well, I think Astros are up one to nothing right now. Um yeah. I always ask these last two questions, cuz, and we've, we've kind of tiptoed around probably this first question several times tonight, and you've probably kind of answered it, but if you've got a special way of maybe wording it different or a, a different way you want to answer, that'd be, that'd be perfect. But, um, what's a, what's one piece of advice that you would give a listener, a new hunter, anybody that they were going to film? I mean, just one big piece of advice that you share maybe every day, even with your grandkids or something like that, that somebody could take with them. You talking about to film a hunt or just to uh, you can do, it can just be life in general. It don't even have to be about filming. It can just be life in general. Yeah, well, you know, <clears throat> life in general is, you know, <clears throat> that just live your life like somebody's watching. You know, I tell my grandkids all the time. I said, and I'm always on them, and they're real good about it. Yes, sir. No, ma'am. I said, you know, that does a couple of things. I said that separates you from everybody else. And when it's time to get a job and, you know, competition's tight, you know, any little edge you can get, that's one thing that separates you. You know, pick up behind yourself, do all that kind of stuff, try to separate yourself from the crowd and uh, just just act like I, I used to tell those young videographers, act like your mom was standing behind you. Uh, respect, a sense of humor, and a good work ethic, a work ethic will take you to the moon. If you'll just stick that out right there. That's what I told my kids. And I have great kids. Both my girls were just unbelievable. And I used to, I, I tell them a good sense of humor and a work ethic 
and that'll take you a long way. So uh, uh, manners, respect, that never goes out of style. Couldn't ask for better no. advice. <laughs> um, my last question for you, and, and again, I thank you for coming on, cuz. I thank you for uh, taking your time out this afternoon. I know you're busy, and you got a lot of stuff going on. Um, what are you most thankful for? Uh, my family. You know, I, I could I could talk for hours <clears throat> about how close I came to losing my wife. We've been married 46 years, and uh, it's not a day goes by. I'm not thankful for her because I travel so much, you know, when she raised those girls and and uh, we had tough times, you know. We didn't have any money or anything. We stuck together, and that's what I, I tell them boys now. When you when you start picking out a bride, you got to make sure she's a. You got to find a partner, and uh, you know the. You, if if I have, I don't have a legacy. I don't think about that. But if they if they put on if they put on your headstone, he was a good dad, and a, you know a good husband and a good friend. That's as good as you can do. Nothing, you know. If if you got that family tight and you're willing to make the sacrifice for them and, and uh, show them the way, there's n- there's no better blessing you can have than a good family. So that's, uh, that's what I'm most grateful for. I can take this farm and I could go back to living in a, you know, a 50 foot house trailer. And if I got all these people with me, I'd be fine. So to me, family's it. <laughs> Amen. Cause one last thing, man. I, I I hope you get some good video and some good stuff for the Mossy Oak Go Up. I want to see Cranky uh, get him one this uh, fall and winter. Well, I appreciate it. We got. I'm, I'm waiting on him. You know, him. This was his first year for football. Okay. And his older brother's up there in JV playing football. He's a big old boy now. So they've been all about sports. And then the first weekend they would have had to hunt. I put him to to work cutting firewood. So <laughs> uh, I got some, I got my own spot. And uh, trying to find Cranky a big deer. His brother killed two bucks last year. So it's just a matter of time for old Cranky's back on YouTube. He's going to let there out of one shortly, I promise you. Boy, I got tickled the other day when you done that episode with him and Matt. And he said, I think I can hunt on my own now. And you said, well, I don't think you're quite ready. Yeah. <laughs> but Yeah, his, his brother his brother finally went out on his own. He was 12 last year, big boy. Yeah. And uh, he said, Pop, I'm ready. I said, okay. And we were hunting a really nice deer, big awake point. And I let him go back down there, and I said, now, you just, you got this, yes, sir. He's very safe. And I get this text, because he'd already killed a buck. He said, Pop, he's here. And I started texting him, you know, slow your breathing down, all this stuff. I was writing this text, and I hear, pow, pow. <laughs> I was like, well, he didn't read the text. <laughs> and we went down there, and it was a deer. A littler deer than the one he shot the first time, and I was like, "Matt, no, you fix and have a, a valuable lesson. That's what the big eye is." <laughs> and he's like, "What?" And I said, "You had, you got the big eye. As soon as you saw that rack, you thought it was the big one." <laughs> and of course, we hug and high five. I don't really have many guidelines for these kids around here. I don't care what they shoot; on it's legal, and because uh, we eat them all. And I ain't into growing Boone and Crockett's. You know, I'm I'm, I'm into the venison part. Basically, I deer hunt because turkey season ain't open. <laughs> but, uh, it's uh, it's all about the meat. And if they get a big one, that's good. And if they want to wait on a big one, I don't care. I just want them out there. So. Well, again, again, thank you. I guess we'll go around the table here and let everybody talk. But I want to say thank you and tell Lauren thank you also for, for making this happen, come together tonight. Well, thank you all for the invite. It means a lot. 
Yeah, cuz I appreciate you coming on. I I didn't talk none, but I just enjoyed sitting over here <laughs> listening to some wisdom come out this evening. So I appreciate you taking time coming on with us for sure. Yes, sir. My my pleasure. Remember when I was talking about the outdoor riders, what y'all are doing now, y'all are all the outdoor riders. What y'all do is very important and don't ever think otherwise. Like I said, so you know, keep the faith and stay the path and be true to yourself. You guys got a bright future. Nick, that brings us down to the final spit. And at the end of it all, Cuz Strickland can say, he's seen sunsets most will never see. He's held conversations most will never hear. And shook hands most men will never touch. The ears of the listeners here at Talk About It Outdoors are better after hearing this episode. And from everyone here at Talk About It Outdoors, we want to thank you for listening. We want to thank Cuz Strickland for joining us. And we want to remind you all to smile as you go. And remember, mount the memories.